Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, team? So I'm excited, so excited for today's episode. I'm speaking with one of my mentors from the University of South Florida, Dr. Buckner. Uh, he's an assistant professor of exercise science in the College of Education at USF. He earned his bachelor's degree from Temple University in 2012, his master's degree from Florida Atlantic University in 2014, and his doctorate at the University of Mississippi in 2018. Um, his research specifically focuses on skeletal muscle adaptation, and his current workplace emphasis is on enhancing the understanding of the effects of blood flow restriction and muscle size. He's got 60 papers published in peer-reviewed journals, and in 2012 was the Guinness World Record holder for the most consecutive 90-degree push-ups. So we get into a lot of the conversation around muscle strength and size. Are they the same and why not? Talking about limitations in research, things that you guys should be paying attention to, and so much more. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you, and I hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Samuel Buckner. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm pretty good. How about you? I feel like I need to call you Dr. Buckner. <laughs> it's a weird transition calling a, because uh, my mentor, I still call him Dr. Lenneke, and all their professors think it's weird that I do that. Um, I, I can't seem to flip the switch. So. It's so interesting. When I said that, I was like, mm, that feels different. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's good <laughs> or bad. It just feels different. Uh, but I'm excited to have you on. And like I said earlier, I think that you really are a diamond in the rough in the research, especially around strength hypertrophy, like all of the muscle building research that goes on. There are some bigger names in research, but yours is smaller, yet I feel more significant um, and I think a lot of people, if you're not familiar with Dr. Buckner's work, it's very open. Um, and I think one thing I really respect about you and I, I learned about you during our time together in my master's was that you're not here to be right. You just want to move closer to the truth. And I've heard you, you know, be so open and receptive to feedback and like, yes, there's limitations on different studies and perspectives and things that we still need to investigate, but you also challenge a lot of bigger ideas and you're not afraid to do that with your lab and your background. And so I'm very curious, and for our listeners, um, what got you into studying the differences between strength and hypertrophy? Cool. Um, well, thanks for that intro. And uh, I think it's an interesting question because I, I never imagined or thought I'd be a, a scientist or a researcher. Um, if, I guess if you would have gone back to like the undergrad master's student version of myself, I would have thought all this is pretty lame. Um, I I always enjoyed lifting weights. Um, I, I took weightlifting my entire senior year of high school, um, where we had block schedule, so it's two hours a day, literally. And, and I knew I was pretty good at it, and I knew I wanted to make a career some something with lifting weights. Um, and uh, I I went to school and was in a program for athletic training. I think I've told this story in class, but I chose athletic training because I wanted to train athletes. And I thought that's what that meant. Um, so about one year in, I, I figure out when I finally have the athletic training class, I was like, wait a second, athletic training is wrapping 
you know, injuries. And that's not at all what I thought it was. Um, so I switched to exercise science and decided I want to be a strength coach, um, which seemed cool to me because, okay, strength coach, that's training athletes. That's what I originally wanted to do. Um, so I got an internship as a strength coach. It was a lot of fun. I've never felt smaller in my life, like working with college football players in division one. Um, and ultimately I think I decided it wasn't for me just because of my personality. You gotta be loud. You gotta scream a lot. Um, I, I think it's most of the coaches I run cursed a lot. Like there's nothing, nothing that suits my personality at all. So I, I suppose I, uh, at that point I was figuring out what might work for me. And, um, the department chair at Florida Atlantic University at the time um, met me and started saying, you should come get a master's degree. Um, so I reluctantly enrolled in the master's program, got a master's in exercise physiology. And I kind of ran like a bod body composition um, testing program that they did. So a lot of people came in, got testing done. And um, we raised money that allowed me to go to conferences. So I, I was going to conferences. And that same individual that recruited me for the program said, you know, you should think about a PhD. And I remember thinking, oh, that's boring. I don't want to do that. Like, I'm really fit. I could do something cooler. Um, <laughs> and, and I was in a presentation. I think, it, honestly, I think it was on creatine. And I was watching this presenter, and he was a big name, pretty well known. And I just thought, I, I think I could do what he's doing. Like, that seems like something I think I could accomplish. And I decided, okay, I'll give the PhD a try. Um, and, and hopefully I'm not giving too much detail or, or rambling too much, but I ended up at university of Nebraska, um, and like a nutritional science PhD. And I thought it was super cool. They're really well known, great researchers. Um, but uh, about a year in, like it just wasn't working. So, um, me and my mentor, I guess we're just very different people. And I wasn't effective at communicating with him. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't know what it was about my personality. I, I always felt like he didn't like me and uh, maybe he did, who knows, but I, I ended up quitting my PhD the first time around, which uh, kind of, I, I didn't even want to hear the word science. I didn't want to read a research paper. I was pretty bitter towards all of it. Um, and then I, I moved back home to, to Florida and who had become my mentor, Jeremy Lenicky, was visiting for ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine Conference. And I happened to meet him um, through another friend and colleague. And we watched a football game together. And I, I remember saying, this guy seems pretty normal. Like, um, I think I could work with him. Like, he seems cool. He was close to my age. Um, and we seemed to get along. So I, I just decided to give it a second try had no idea if I'd like it, had no idea if I'd be good at it. And um, yeah, it was there that I really came to love science, enjoy science, enjoy the process of asking questions um, and, and, and trying to get evidence or insight into those questions. And um, I, I guess the reason I, I love science and what I do is because I had a good mentor that taught me how to do it. And um, you know, I, I learned through, through him the value of the scientific method and this whole process. And uh, yeah, it's so cool when you, you do it correctly. And, and, and when you have legitimate inquiries or questions that you want to know the answer to, and you can actually design things to get you closer to understanding those things. 
Um, so I, I guess I went from a place where I thought it wasn't even possible for me to be a researcher or scientist to now I can't imagine myself doing anything else. So that's the long or short version of it. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And that's one thing I can I can attest to is just how passionate you are about what you do. Um, talking about someone who is in his office every day, reading papers, researching things, designing studies, mentoring students. I mean, you you live what you do. And I think that that's incredible. And that shows the level of passion that you have to find the answers or at least find solutions or, or suggestions maybe that um, the things that you're investigating may or may not be as similar as those think. And so with that pivot, I do, um, I wanna talk about what, maybe it was uh, Lenicky's research. And I know that he might be controversial in, in research as well, just like with his opinions. Um, what started that investigation between strength and hypertrophy? What was the question um, and what have your, this, the research that you guys have done, what has that shown? Um, yeah, so this one's a, a cool story, I suppose. Um, and so for the listeners, the idea or concept that's being challenged is the idea that when you train, the reason you get stronger is because your muscles grow or you get bigger. Um, and in 2016, we published the first paper, um, not really the first paper, the first modern paper, I suppose, challenging the relationship between muscle growth adaptation and muscle strength adaptation. Um, and for us, where it seemed to start, um, you know, we did a lot of low load training. So we did studies where we had individuals lift lightweight and we'd look at the adaptations of both muscle size and strength. And when we did those studies, most of the time, when you lift lightweight to failure, your muscles grow, but you don't get stronger. So that was puzzling to us, and it didn't make complete sense. And for a while, we would dance around the idea, like in the discussion of a paper, we would try to explain it away, but not change the story at all. So we'd be like, yeah, the neural adaptations are just delayed. Um, and we, we kept doing studies, and we, we kept observing the fact that muscle growth never seems to guarantee that you get stronger um, which if it's a powerful mechanism for strength you would expect if you made your muscles bigger your muscles can now produce more force yeah. and <clears throat> i remember and i've told this story before but um we were at like this mississippi has this carnival um every year and everyone goes to the square and everyone's drinking and partying. So we took a break from the lab just to walk down and, and just take a look at it. Um, it we would go on walks all the time and think about ideas. So we walked down, we checked it out and we were walking back. And I remember uh, my mentor, Dr. Lenicky saying, you know, I'm, I'm just starting to think that muscle growth really isn't doing anything. And um, I remember just going like, yeah, yeah, it's doing something. I, I think you're wrong. Um, and I think maybe that's where the idea really started to take place for him, um, that he, he wasn't convinced that muscle growth was driving strength, even though that's what we've been taught, that's what we all assume is true. And um, I disagreed with him and he, he challenged me to find the studies. He said, find me the evidence that would show that muscle growth is driving strength. And then I think in our next, few lab meetings, he, he put that challenge to everybody in our lab group to try to find the evidence that muscle growth is driving strength. And uh, those papers do not exist. So it's, it's kind of interesting. 
that we have this narrative that we 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 tell people that we read in textbooks and you know anyone that's taken a a personal training certification has probably learned on some level that the first couple of weeks you have these neural adaptations that make you stronger but after that the main reason you get stronger is muscle growth um so we wrote our first paper on it in 2016 it's titled the problem of muscle hypertrophy revisited and the reason it says revisited is the idea wasn't new we weren't the first ones to have this idea in 1955 um authors physiologists um philip rash i think his name is published a similar idea suggesting that yeah it doesn't seem like muscle growth can explain why we get stronger and um from there we started designing studies because we really wanted to to better understand the relationship between these things and you know we can never we've never been able to demonstrate that muscle growth makes you stronger than not having muscle growth over an 8 to 12 week time period so that's a limitation of the science but i've i reached a point where i'm comfortable to say that all the studies that do exist that claim that muscle growth is doing something important i'm very confident that in those studies muscle growth is not important so the entire scientific literature that examines adaptations to resistance training are between eight and 12 weeks. I don't think there's any individual that over eight to 12 weeks, or, or I don't think in any of the eight to 12 week studies, muscle growth is doing anything meaningful for strength adaptation. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't ever do anything meaningful, but it does mean that we need longer studies to see if eventually it does. Because we know you can lift lightweight, your muscles grow, but right? If you take two people that have never trained, the person with the bigger muscle is probably the stronger person, right? So a bigger muscle typically is a stronger muscle. What we're talking about is when you start training, the reason you get even stronger is that because your muscles got even bigger. It's kind of a difficult concept to explain sometimes. Have, we've created this idea that we grow a lot. We do grow, but how much are we capable of growing? maybe a centimeter of muscle thickness depending on what muscle we pick how big your muscle is compared to how big it can get with training you can get a small percentage greater than what it was so that little bit you get on top of what your muscle already is does that have a meaningful impact on how strong you can become nobody can demonstrate that that has a meaningful impact on strength and if it is a strong potent mechanism then I think surely some lab out there can demonstrate how important it is. Um, so yes, if, if you have two, two people, one's bigger, most of the time the larger person is stronger. But a larger person is still going to have a limited capacity to grow when they train. And I would argue that that growth isn't the primary reason that they get stronger when they train. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about the differences from baseline yeah where you already are yeah yeah okay no i just want to make sure everybody understands what you're saying because i know sometimes people like to say what you're saying and it's not what you're saying so i just want to make sure um that, that we we work through that so everyone understands the argument that you're making and so i want to talk about your research um and some of the specific findings that you are and have at USF Muscle designed your lab to be really focused around. And some of the outcomes of the studies, along with you, we can discuss limitations of them as well, but that continue to support that, that uh, theory. 
Yeah, so um, one of the most recent ones that we had published, um, it was within subject design. So individuals came in, they were resistance trained. So they've been lifting. I think our criteria was for at least six months, but it might've been one year. Um, and we do a bicep curl model, meaning when people come into our lab, we typically just have them do bicep curls. And that's a limitation, but I'll explain why we use a bicep curl. The bicep is a really easy muscle to image. So I use ultrasound to measure the muscle to see how big the muscle is. And since it's easy to measure, I can detect small changes in muscle size, which is what you're going to acquire over eight to 12 weeks. So we do bicep curls. We know bicep curls are effective at growing the biceps and we measure the biceps. So individuals came in and one of their arms was assigned to a hypertrophy condition. So they did four sets of a moderately heavy weight around 70% of the 1RM for eight to 12 repetitions. And they performed four sets of that exercise um, for eight weeks time. So over eight weeks, that caused growth. The other arm just came in and worked up to a single maximal attempt. So a 1RM, a max out, um, and just one repetition. So you had one protocol that's gonna cause growth, another protocol that won't cause growth. And at the end of the eight weeks, both arms got strong and they got strong to a similar amount, right? So they both increased, they increased the same. So then we wanted to see, okay, maybe the arm that grew, even though it's not stronger now, maybe it has a stronger potential to be, to reach higher levels of strength if we let it exploit and practice being strong. So then both arms did a 1RM twice a week for an additional four weeks to see if the muscle that had growth could become stronger than the muscle that did not have growth. Does that make sense? Yep. And at the end of the total of 12 weeks, strength was still similar between the groups. So it's a study with a lot of limitations, but I think our study design sets in place what we need. We need to have growth in one condition, no growth in the other, and see at what point can you not get stronger if you don't grow? And I think that's a really worthwhile question because um, we use trained people. So in theory, and according to our textbooks, the only reason a trained person gets stronger is because they grow. Yet one arm did not grow and they got stronger. So that already pokes a hole in what our textbook tells us, which is the primary reason a trained person gets stronger is because they grow. So we know that that's probably not true. And then in addition, having growth, did it make you stronger than not having growth over a 12 week period? And maybe that's a limitation, right? 12 weeks is not a long amount of time. So an argument that's been proposed, um, discussed in podcasts here and there, um, is that that strength potential just takes a long time to manifest itself. Meaning that long-term strength adaptation is eventually going to require you to grow. Um, Maybe this is true, and, and we're actually working on a few other studies that I think will indirectly provide more evidence for this idea. So we, I think you probably were around when we started our year-long study. So we're tracking muscle size and strength across one year in people who've been habitually lifting weights and habitually doing bicep curls. Um, and we've looked at the initial data. We've, we've collected that data for four years. Um, 
in over one year, it's not published yet, but I'll, I'll give a little bit of insight. Over one year's time, people have been lifting for the average training age in that study is like seven years. So people have been lifting for a while. We had no growth. So people have been lifting over one year did not grow. Um, but they did get a little bit stronger. So that, again, pokes another hole in the narrative that when you're a trained individual, the primary reason you get stronger is because you grow. Um, so there's just so many interesting ways, I think, to get at this question. And I hope other labs will start using study design to, to provide better insight. Uh, another thing we're doing that I think is really cool, um, we're doing like this bodybuilding case study, a case series. And I've been trying to get the, the largest outliers that exist. Um, so we've had some incredible bodybuilders come in to help us out. And, and and their muscles are enormous. And um, <laughs> from from my perspective, what's cool about this is because you know we can look at some of the largest muscled individuals on the planet and look at the size of their bicep, right? And and these these athletes, to be fair, compete in um, non drug tested organizations. So there's obviously some super physiological adaptations that take place, but that can give us a, a rough idea of the limits. Of, of human growth potential because I know roughly where they started before they ever trained. You know, an untrained bicep for a male is probably between three and a half to four and a half centimeters, right? So if their bicep is seven centimeters, I know they grew three to four centimeters in their lifting career. And that tells me a lot about the limits of human muscle growth. And and, and, and I think it adds another layer to helping understand how much growth is possible and then how much could this growth potentially impact strength if it does at all. Um, so we have multiple layers, I think, of, of ways to better understand this relationship. Um, but currently, all of the training studies seem to show that over eight weeks, over 12 weeks, muscle growth is not important for strength. Over longer periods of time, it may become important, but our year-long study would suggest that it probably isn't. Um, so it, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm not going to say the muscle growth is not important, but it seems like a much weaker mechanism for strength if it is playing a role. Well, that's super interesting on so many levels. And I would say like, I think just from an evolutionary standpoint, right, it wouldn't make sense for people to be able to just continue to put on mass amounts of muscle at some point it's metabolically demanding, uh, but also just like as far as range of motion movement and ability to travel, if indeed you were being attacked by a lion in the middle of the woods, right, or something, right, yeah. you know, a lot of bodybuilders that are very big that can't, that have no cardiovascular abilities really to like run sprints, right, um, so I can see where that, you know, wouldn't necessarily make sense. And then on the other side of that, um, you know, you hear crazy stories about moms, like flipping cars and like crazy shit, right. They just have this like innate strength that they, they tap into whenever there's a desire and alert, right. To be able to do that thing. Um, you know, if they, even if they had not, they don't train, like, you know, you hear stories all the time that like moms just do these crazy, crazy things. So interesting, just examples as far as like what people might observe or, or hear in their day to day that can provide some context into the argument that that you're challenging. Um, and one thing that we hear a lot, um, and I of course want to hear your your insights on this. And then we did talk about this in the program, but 
everybody always asks about muscle soreness and what that means. And I know that one of the arguments is that soreness isn't damaged necessarily. Um, and so I would love your take on, you know, muscle soreness. What does it mean? Potential mechanisms, um, and how an athlete that's experiencing this, um, should move forward in their training. Cool. Um, before I do muscle soreness, I'll just comment on what you just said about the limits to growth, uh, just because I, I think it's interesting. Um, so your ability to get bigger is probably much more limited than your ability to get stronger. I think there's a plateau in the growth you can achieve much sooner than a plateau in your strength. And, and that's another layer that suggests that, okay, long-term strength probably isn't driven by growth. And, and kind of what you're saying as far as survival, if you look at a 300-pound bodybuilder, their body does not want to be that big. There's a lot of chemical warfare, but there's other things as well, trying to keep that weight and the body's resisting. And I think just the normal person training, you know, you get bigger to a point, but then there's no advantage to being bigger. Right. It's going to, like, the metabolic demand mm -hmm. would probably be, have negative consequences for successful aging. And when you look at most theories of aging, um, and this is a really weird one but everyone wants a really high metabolic rate for for weight loss right but i sometimes wonder is a low metabolic rate better for longevity meaning if you want to live to be a hundred it would probably be best to have not that much muscle mass or certainly not over hypertrophied muscles you don't want really big muscles if you want to live to be a hundred and you probably i would assume don't want a really high protein diet you want protein but not a super high protein diet so us muscle people we think about muscle as this really good thing and it is for performance for um, strength for physique um, acquisition all these sorts of things but i i think if the discussion went towards longevity and, and our body wants to survive as we age we give we get rid of muscle because it's metabolically taxing and if you look at metabolic theories of aging, if you can reduce that, you're probably going to survive a little bit longer. So um, side tangent, but I think that's a cool way to think about it. And, and it's a, a reason to not keep seeking maximal muscle size your entire life, because I, I think that pursuit, although fun and interesting, would not limit itself to longevity. So hold on, before you continue, I have to comment on that. So um, you know me as a bodybuilder, right? And I've like done that whole thing. What I've now switched to, what my business is actually focused around is optimizing longevity and quality of life for people, right? That's really what I'm passionate about because I focused on like the aesthetic side of stuff. And as I age and as I get older and as I want kids and as I work with more entrepreneurs and just people that are really wanting to optimize their, their brain capacity and their physical capacity without it being detrimental to them long-term, and what we focus on and what I do is actually break a lot of those beliefs that like, well, you're supposed to eat a super high protein diet and you're supposed to, you know, train all this. And I'm like for that outcome. Right. But there's context to it all. And so if we're really focused on longevity, but also quality of life, right. There are so many differing opinions, but that's why I don't agree with people that demonize keto. Like if somebody wants to eat that type of diet and they're a doctor and they want focus and they don't want to be worrying about hunger cues and those types of things, and they're not out here chasing strength or hypertrophy, that might be a great diet for them. And so like, I just think that that's so important that you said that now, the one thing I would say is like, 
I don't want people to not train or not consume protein because as you age, you also have to think quality of life. And in order to be a grandma or great grandma and squat down and pick up your niece and I mean, your great grandkids, you might want to be able to squat through that movement pattern, which we do want some type of mobility and some type of strength training. Um, so there's obviously context and nuance to it all, but, um, I found that point to be super important and very, very interesting, but I'll let you go back to, uh, what we're talking about as far as soreness. Yeah. So muscle soreness, um, this is an interesting one. And, um, you know, soreness is something that I, I suppose when you were in the program, I said, we don't completely understand. Yep. Um, and I don't know how many years it's been, but I will now say we don't completely understand soreness. So, um, not much has changed. Um, it's been suggested that, you know, inflammation probably plays a large role in muscle soreness that individuals experienced. Um, there's a, a good textbook by Jones and round, I think it's published in 1999 on muscle, maybe 1990 on, on muscle damage where they, they suggest inflammation, particularly around the connective tissue is one of the culprits for, for muscle soreness. Um, a lot of people associate muscle soreness with muscle damage. Um, there was a study by Nozaka, again, I think in the 90s or early 2000s, where they looked at many, several indirect markers of muscle damage. So most people know that when you train, you experience muscle damage on some level, usually if you lift heavy and have an eccentric component, meaning you're lengthening your muscle while you're contracting your muscle. Now, the best indicator that you have muscle damage is if your force producing capabilities or if your strength is decreased. Other markers of muscle damage are muscle swelling, um, muscle soreness, elevated creatine kinase in the blood, because creatine kinase should be in the muscle. If it's in the blood, we have um, injury to the muscle, um, range of motion. These are all like indicators of muscle damage. And, and what Nozaka found is that muscle soreness was poorly correlated with all these other indicators of damage which to him suggested that soreness is not a reliable indicator that you have muscle damage which is pretty interesting because most people that have soreness they'll feel their muscle like oh man i got a bunch of damage um when that we can't necessarily say that that's the case um if you do a low load protocol and i, I don't know if you ever did one of those in our lab but light weights with or without blood flow restriction, because I do a lot of work where I restrict blood flow and have people exercise, that causes extreme soreness sometimes. But when you pull out the muscle and look at it, it doesn't have structural damage. And when we say structural damage, if you zoom in on a muscle cell, a muscle cell has these structural proteins that allow other proteins that produce force to kind of run across and, 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 and connect to each other. Those structural proteins become damaged and they can be imaged and looked at. And when you lift lightweight, that doesn't happen, yet you still get sore. Mm -hmm. um, and you typically get sore 24 to 48 hours after you exercise, right? Which is also interesting because if it was damaged, would that soreness not be present you know, more quickly? And I think that's led many to suggest that, you know, a, a, a repair response, neutrophil, um, so immune cells rushing into the cell to remove debris and, and correct things, that might actually cause the muscle cell to be damaged, which is why a lot of that soreness seems to be delayed. Mm. Um, 
I, we talked about it in one lab meeting, but there's been even the suggestion that a lot of soreness is just perceived and that you always get sore, but you no longer perceive that you're sore. Yeah. Um, so there could be a mind component there. Um, but one thing that seems to be true is that the first time you ever work out, you're probably the, as sore as you're ever going to be. Yep. And then when you try something new, you might often get sore again. Um, some people get sore when they employ progressive overload, when they increase what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but by and large, we know that when you expose your muscle to a damaging stimulus, <clears throat> your muscle reinforces itself to protect itself from becoming damaged again. And we learned about this as well. It's called the repeated bout effect, right? So this idea that once your muscle has been damaged, it's actually pretty hard to damage it again. And the protocols used in the scientific literature are crazy. There's nothing close to anything a normal human would do in the gym if they're sane. It's like 100, <laughs> 100 reps at 110% of your max strength, which is stronger than you are. It just it pulls you down and you try to resist it. Yeah. So it causes this, this massive amount of damage. And the second time you do that same bout, you don't get the damage that you got the first time. And the third time you do it, it's even less. So we have a robust ability to protect ourselves from damage. And, and I think in the presence, in, in the lack of presence of extreme damage, we can still get sore, which is perhaps part of the mystery. Why is that happening? Um, and unfortunately, I, I can't give a great answer. I, I think a lot of it is inflammation still, even even if we don't have classic structural damage to the muscle cells, I think there's still some inflammation associated with training. Um, and then I also think, and I, I haven't put too much thought in this, so this is a new idea I'm coming up with on the spot, but um, you know, we did the NuFit study. And the NuFit, for people who don't know, it's like an electrical stimulation machine you can put on your muscles and it contracts your muscles. Yeah. It, it causes a, a much different soreness than what you get from lifting traditional heavy weight. When you lift traditional heavy weight, you get sore close to the muscle tendon unit. So where your muscle connects to the joint, like most people get sore um, in the distal parts of the muscle near the connective tissue. The new fit stimulation machine was making everybody sore right in the middle of their muscle belly. So another question is, does that different type of soreness indicate a different type of injury to the muscle? Is, is one more related to inflammation around the connective tissue? Is the other more apparent of structural damage to the muscle cells themselves? Um, I'm not really sure, but I think there's other opportunities for inquiry um, into different types of muscle soreness because I think there is more than one type of muscle soreness. Um, I, I don't, I'm sure there's another part to your question and I threw a lot out there. So maybe we regroup and see what no, I have I and have an that. answer. <laughs> I, I think, well, I personally, again, like a lot of people, and especially for people that might be listening, it's like, oh, well, if I'm not sore, I didn't have a good workout, right? Because I did yeah. drive all the damage that's required for me to grow. But based on what you're saying, and from my understanding of what you're saying, is that we don't necessarily need damage nor soreness to experience changes in strength or hypertrophy over time. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, a lot of people do use that as an indicator that they had a quality workout. Like on leg day, if they can walk the next day comfortably, they're upset at themselves. Yep. Um, and 
you know, although maybe that's a, quite an accomplishment and, and maybe an indicator that they trained with a certain intensity, I don't think it's necessary um, because we know sufficiently stressing and fatiguing the muscle is enough to make a muscle grow. So I, I don't think we should be chasing damage. And in fact, you know, there might be times where, you know, if you wanted to train with a certain frequency, you may not want damage because what if you're not recovered from that damage by the next time you want to train the muscle, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, muscle damage, there's some models of adaptation where it says the three reasons we grow yep. are mechanical load. So how heavy is the weight? What is the weight? Um, metabolic contribution. So metabolites produced from exercise. And the third one that some people throw into this model is muscle damage. And I would argue if muscle damage was a robust mechanism for growth, then why would our own physiology protect our protect us from damage, right? So as soon as you've had damage, it's harder to damage yourself. And you can chase that damage, but it's going to become harder and harder to damage your muscles. So it seems like it's probably not an important factor. It's a consequence of training sometimes. Yeah. Um, some of it might be related to your hydration, to your um, nutrition, your sleep, all these sorts of things. Because, you know, we'd have people come in for our studies. And if we knew they drank a lot the night before, I don't want them doing a taxing protocol. If they're dehydrated, you know, the, the risk of, of, of muscle damage is, is a bit higher. And I would want to stay away from that. So, you know, if someone's not feeling good, it could be a consequence of more than just training hard. It, it might be doing things that aren't good for you outside of your workout as well, I think. Yeah, there's a lot, obviously, that will contribute to one's ability to actually generate the adaptation that they're seeking. Um, but one thing that I think is important to maybe consider with what you just said is that if, if damage has an association with inflammation, we know that inflammation, especially systemic inflammation is counterproductive to quality of life and aging, right? And if the goal is to stay alive, well, then protecting your body from experiencing that damage again, because it's mitigating inflammation, well, that would somewhat make sense um, as, an, as an adaptation to continue to allow you to have the fundamentals of being strong and or bigger for survival purposes, but not necessarily experiencing the inflammatory response every time you access your ability to do that. Um, just kind of looking at it from a different angle, but that to me makes sense. Um, and, and is, is a good question to ask, I would say. Um, but I, I find that just super intriguing. And I know a lot of people will always ask, well, I'm not sore. So my training sucked. And again, there's lots of, lots of contributing factors there. Um, but in closing, my curiosity is, you, you mentioned some things that you'll investigate, which I'm, I'm excited to see what you do with those, uh, the ones that you just brought up on, on this podcast, but what are you designing or working on now? I know you mentioned kind of a, a longer study about, you know, people that are trained and the differences there, but what other research are you specifically investigating and where do you think we really need to dive into focusing on these differences? Um, yeah, so, oh. We have, we have a few studies that we're, we're working on and, and a few that we're getting ready to start up. Um, one of them would be impossible for me to explain because it's this, it's this cool hypothesis we came up with that I don't want to let out of the bag yet. Okay. Um, but, but in short, I, I, think, I think growth in trained people 
is a short-lived adaptation, meaning um, I'll put a little piece of the hypothesis out there. Um, when you're trained, so you're trained and I'm trained, I think we can get bigger temporarily, but I don't, I think it's hard to hold on to that adaptation. Meaning if you train really hard for eight or 12 weeks, I think your muscles can grow a very small amount, yeah. but then when you go back to training all of your muscles and, and not giving that extra focus to a muscle group, I think it's hard to hold on to that little bit of tissue you put on because again, what does your body gain from holding on to that tissue, right? What's the value of that tissue other than needing resources? So I, I am curious and, and maybe I did let the whole idea out of the bag, but uh, we have a design where I think we're going to try to see our adaptations and train individuals, meaning you've already grown. So you can grow your muscle, but after you've grown your muscle, can you get that little bit more out? And I think this is something that exists. And, and honestly, I think every training study we have in training individuals is capturing that phenomena where you can get a little bit out, but it's, it's, it's unlikely that you could hold on to that extra tissue that you acquire. Um, so I have, we're working on studies to better understand how long adaptations in trained individuals can last. Um, and better understand that upper limit of growth um where it is and, and 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 how quickly we get there i suppose does that make sense yeah so essentially i think what you're saying is that there's some type of upper limit to the capacity of how much lean body mass we can actually sustain right that's favorable to our ability to live a longer or higher quality of life uh, because it is so metabolically taxing over time. So then it's, if you can acquire new tissue are, so I guess my question on the, the other side of that would be, are you going to be monitoring total volume with that? Like the amount of volume required to put it on? Cause I know that the argument that I've heard, um, is that it takes about a ninth of the total volume that you use to gain the amount of lean body mass to sustain that amount of lean body mass. And so are you going to have like fluctuating phases of training to push, to put on again, cause you have to like force that adaptation, especially in trained people. So forcing the adaptation to see growth and then bringing it back down to their previous training volume and assessing if they keep that. Um, it's something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause I think you can, as a trained individual, I think you can maintain 99 point something percent adaptation i think it's more so permanent until you start aging but I, I think there's that little bit on top and that little bit on top is important because that little bit on top is is all we're measuring in studies that it completely changes how we interpret a lot of the scientific literature in trained individuals um and, and i could be completely wrong on this idea i've, I've already told enrique this um but to me, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's gonna be cool to tease out and, and, and try to try to learn more about um, what happens to trained people who, who train. And I, I'm already convinced that, you know, most people that have been lifting for a year, two years, three years, four years, or in a maintenance phase. And I, I say that to you guys at the beginning of the program. Yeah. Um, and I, I apologize for it. But um, that doesn't mean you can't grow, but you can't you're not going to see crazy changes 
at that point. It's really, really small climbs. Um, so I on those small changes and better understand those and um, what they mean. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I remember when you said that, because I was like, damn it, I've reached my upper <laughs> genetic potential, um, yeah. which there is. And I think most people, especially when you look at physique athletes, maybe, and it, that's an industry that I've worked in a lot, is like you see even trained athletes, there's a point to where they just, they have to work a lot harder to get a smaller return on the investment than they did when they first started training, right? We hear newbie gains all the yeah. time, right? Because we know that to be true in observation and in studies. Um, whether you're newbie trained or maybe coming back after a prolonged detraining period, um, that's where you can see most body composition shift, um, but not to a point where we're seeing the amount of pound per pound acquired yeah. with even the same or increased training intensity and volume attribute to the same changes in their physiology, um, yeah. which is super interesting. And again, supports kind of that like upper limit theory of what we can do as far as added lean body mass, maybe is a better way to phrase it. Like genetically you're set to be able to carry X amount until it's just metabolically too demanding at which it's detrimental to your overall health. Right. Cause just think about even total like cardio out cardiovascular output and, and driving blood flow, returning blood flow and like what that needs to do as far as nutrient delivery, but also removing of, of toxins maybe built up in muscle tissue. So there's a lot there um, that, of course, piques my curiosity because now I'm like, I want to know how this is going to go. Um, but I don't know if you have any final notes or takeaways for the listeners today. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge, wisdom, and expertise. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I, I hope they like what we shared. Um, I'm horrible at the, the last takeaways. Um, I, what, would I you guess say I would, to, what would you say to those who are really interested in learning more about evidence-based practice? What would you say as far as if they were going to start investigating literature, some important principles or maybe peace of mind going into going down that rabbit hole? Um, I guess I'll say this. Um, being evidence-based is, is intimidating, I think. Um, it, it surely was to me years ago when I started reading research papers and they made no sense to me. Um, it's a humbling experience in, in, in my experience, you know, trying to, to become an efficient reader of research. It takes time. Um, I think it's okay to make mistakes. I've misinterpreted things before and I see high level people misinterpret things on a regular basis. So everybody does it. Um, you know, I, I, for me, the best thing is the more I read, the, the better I get at, at, at understanding things. Um, you know, if, if you're, uh, there's a lot of research reviews out there, I, I think that are probably doing a, a good job at picking apart research, um, but never subscribe to just, you know, a lot of people will follow this person or that person and subscribe, subscribe to whatever they say is true. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody is 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 above being wrong, or and, and nobody is right all of the time. And nobody's ideology, I, I think, should should be the only thing you subscribe to. I think you should pull knowledge from as many sources as you can, and 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 try to piece together what you think is the truth. And and I hope I do a good job at that with my students. I because. You know, I, I challenge them to disagree with me if they want to. And, and they don't do as often as I would like. Um, maybe because I'm that convincing. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I probably just want to make sure they get an A. 
but I, I think it's really important to try to develop your thinking, not just regurgitation of, of things you hear. And, and yes, that's really hard to do. Um, but if you want to be evidence-based, I think it's important because, you know, it's not about, you know, there's certain names that become popular and then whatever they say becomes gospel and everyone shares it around. And what I've found most of the time is that you know, there's a lot to critique within certain studies and, you know, don't jump on a bandwagon. Every, every single time I've ever heard of something new or the popular thing going around in the social media circuit, I, I sit back quietly and I said, let's just read the paper and see what we think. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, that's a little bit different than what's, you know, making the rounds. Um, if you can find a mentor, mentorship's really important and, and an effective way to, to develop the skills, I think, to, to read and interpret research. And at the end of the day, it's not something that everyone's going to want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you're not pursuing higher education, then I think just diversifying where you get your information from is, is going to be important. Um, and I, I, I'm always happy to answer emails. I mean, that's, I guess, super old school. Who emails anymore? But um, if it's related to muscle adaptation to resistance training, um, I can always be a resource for that one. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's really critical. And I say that to, you know, my friends in just a broader context is to like make sure that the words that you are speaking are things that you actually believe, not things that people told you to be true. I think that if you can investigate all of the things that you believe and ask yourself, do I believe them? Or is that something that somebody just told me to be true? And I accepted that you can really start to figure out what it is that you actually believe based on experience and observation and come to your own conclusions. And I think that is missing a lot as far as actually being an independent thinker and challenging ideas and not being afraid to do that, especially being open to being very wrong. Um, but there's a lot of growth that comes from that. And that's something that I'm super grateful for having you do for me when I was there pulling you around and being in your office all the time is just being able to openly discuss ideas, um, and bounce them off. Even if we challenged one another, I didn't always agree. Um, it contributed a ton to my ability to think differently. And I can say that's helped me tenfold and just thinking outside the box as I continue to go about my future. So super grateful for you. Thank you for coming on today and we'll have to have you back again. Yeah. Thank you for having me.